Hello, guys. Welcome to Courage Church. It's nice to see you all here. Um, so for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jen Kinney. Um, and for those of you who don't know and haven't been here, we've been doing a series called The Anatomy of Joy. So today I'm going to be speaking to you about an aspect of joy. So Drew talked about the joy of the Lord being our strength. Elaine talked about being able to experience joy in the midst of anything that we're going through. And Chris talked about the joy that we experience in community with one another. So I'm gonna speak today about the joy I've experienced in reconciliation work. But before I dig into that, I wanna to talk to you a bit about joy versus happiness and some of the things that we do to set ourselves up for dissatisfaction. So before we get started, let's play a little word association game. I'm going to say a word and you can feel free to shout out the first thing that comes to mind for you. Joy. Okay, so we have happy, what else? Content, okay, cool. So if you watch too many Hallmark movies, you might think of, you know, couples in love ice skating or cute puppies or couples in love ice skating because that's kind of their limitation there. Um, but maybe you think of your family and time spent together or a favorite meal or binge watching Netflix shows that you love. That would be me. Um, but maybe you don't think of things like that at all. Maybe when you hear the word joy, you actually feel a deep sense of sadness or discomfort. And I have to be honest with you, for me, for a very long time, when I heard things like joy, I didn't really feel very comfortable with it. It made me feel uh, sad, uncomfortable, and sometimes even resentful. And so, um, for me, at those times, it could have been because I was in a deep state of grieving or I was incredibly aware of the people around me who were suffering. And it just didn't feel right for me to experience or to feel joy. And sometimes, honestly, in my darkest moments, I kind of wondered if joy just wasn't in the cards for me as a person. So, Theopedia defines joy this way. It says, joy is a state of mind and an orientation of the heart. It is a settled state of contentment, confidence, and hope. So, joy appears 88 times in the Old Testament in 22 different books. And in the New Testament, it appears 57 times in 18 different books. Joy is a fruit of the spirit. Joy is for the, the, the source of our strength is the joy of the Lord. So because this is a characteristic of God, because this is a characteristic of the fruit of the spirit, we can have confidence that knowing God means all of us will experience joy. So joy is for me, joy is for you. So here's the question though, is joy the same as happiness? So Jack Wellman clears it up for us and he says, joy isn't like happiness, which is based upon happenings or whether things are going well or not. No, joy remains even amidst the suffering. So joy is not happiness. 
And that's kind of an interesting thing here because this is where we get into trouble. Oftentimes we think joy and happiness are the same thing. But who defines happiness? The world around us defines happiness. We are inundated with messaging through commercials, through movies, through magazines and social media on a daily basis. The world tells us that happiness comes when we reach a certain milestone, when we gather enough stuff, or maybe when we have a, a pinnacle experience in our lives like parenthood or marriage or home ownership. It's not surprising that living in this consumerist society that we are given these messages that happiness comes in what we can buy. So I know I've fallen prey to that messaging time and time again. The world around us tells us that if we buy a home, we'll be happy. So we buy a home, but we're not happy. And then it tells us, well, you just need to organize your home. And so we buy the books and we buy all of the things that, you know, it requires to organize our home, and we do it, and we're still not happy. And maybe it's not such a big purchase. So for me, it can look like buying a $6 cup of coffee that I can't afford because I'm convinced that I will feel more whole and complete and maybe transported off to some lovely, comfortable space in the world. But you see how this works? So our pursuit for happiness becomes this unending cycle of dissatisfaction. And instead of drawing from God, many of us are attempting to chase happiness instead. Now, I'd love to say that simply understanding the difference between happiness and joy would mean we could step more fully into joy, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. And I want to be clear here. I'm not trying to say that we have a specific model that we have to follow in order to experience joy, but I am saying that we have set things up in our lives that make it more difficult to actually engage with and experience the joy that God has for each and every one of us. So, here's the thing about happiness. When we pursue it, it typically actually leads us away from joy. Happiness is a counterfeit, and its pursuit of, like, causes us to avoid things that we see as a threat to it. So what are some things that we might see as a threat to happiness? Pain, grief, discomfort. So we avoid them. And we pat ourselves and we run from those things. And what we end up doing is we end up creating barriers to joy. So I learned about this when my brother died. When I was 24 and my brother was 20, he was my only sibling, he was killed in a four-wheeling accident. The following months for me were a haze of just grief and agony. It hurt to breathe. Four to five months into it, I got to a point where I could function with some more ease, which was good, and I got to the point where I was eventually pretty numb. So I didn't feel pain, I missed him, I'd think of him, but I didn't have anything inside me that was just dying and aching anymore. And I felt like that was better than being in a constant state of agony. But the problem is I was also numb to joy. Psychologists say that the degree to which we allow ourselves to experience pain and grief is also the degree to which we will be able to experience joy. 
Very simply put, the things we do to avoid feeling pain also prevent us from feeling joy. So going back to the time after my brother died, I'd gotten to a point where you know I knew something was really wrong. I felt really numb to everything around me. I was miserable. I'd go to church. I'd be in community. And, and nothing was really stirring me or moving me. So I didn't really know what to do about it. And I was in church one day, it was a Sunday, and I was going through the motions, you know, I'm in church doing my thing. And all of a sudden these words just pierced through and, and kind of woke me. And it was, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And I suddenly tuned into the pastor who up to that point sounded like one of those peanuts cartoon adults going wah, 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 right? And, and he went on to say, and this was the part that really stuck with me and was very difficult, but he went on to say that God would comfort those who mourned. And the catch was that I would actually have to go and I would have to mourn. And I would have to trust God enough to let go of my tightly held grief and feel again. Now, I had worked very hard up to that point not to feel, so I wasn't very thrilled with this idea. But there was something stirring inside of me, and I knew that this message was for me. And I went home, and I will never forget that moment. I can still see it, I can still feel it in a sense. And I just laid out on the floor and I said, okay, God. And it was like this test. I'm like, fine, you said that you were gonna meet me in my morning and you were gonna comfort me. So I'm gonna trust you with that. And I'm not happy about it, but I'm gonna do it. And I let go, and, and for any of you here who have grieved the loss of somebody or been in a state of intense mourning, you know how terrifying an experience this is. Because you're letting go of a control, at least a perceived control, and you're letting go. And, and for me, I was so afraid that it was gonna just swallow me whole. But I trusted that on the other side of that was a loving God who would hold me, comfort me, and free me. And that's precisely what happened. Now, I don't wanna to delve too deeply into the study and science of psychology because it's out of my realm of expertise here, but I do wanna talk about one more important aspect and barrier that we deal with when it comes to joy and pain. So they're called defense mechanisms. Has anybody here heard of defense mechanisms? Okay. So when we experience trauma and pain, we use certain mechanisms to protect ourselves. We all have them. It's something that we've developed as, as children, and it's a form of survival. For me, when I experience pain or trauma, I tend to intellectualize things. So I go to my head, I try to make sense of it, I use data, I do all of these things. And what that does is that separates me from feeling it in my heart. Now, for some of you, it might be avoidance or defensiveness, but whatever it is, it's helpful and it's important to learn about them so that we can choose vulnerability and we can choose more authentic living over protection. Now, carrying that mindset forward has enabled me to actively engage in things that I would have otherwise avoided like the plague. But now, not only do I engage in them and experience them, I experience a tremendous joy in doing so. So let me tell you a little bit 
about me and how these lessons on feeling have propelled me toward reconciliation. So I am a writer and a podcaster. I worked in anti-trafficking um, activism for close to 15 years. And for the last five years, I've been spending most of my energy in anti-racism work. I even host a podcast dealing with the subject. Um, so I am an activist, and I have the personality of an evangelist by nature, which means when I learn something, I'm going to tell you and you and you all about it, and I'm not going to be swayed by the fact that maybe you're uncomfortable or disinterested, because I'm going to work very hard at letting you know why you need to understand what it is I'm going to tell you. So, hence the podcast, right? But I'm also deeply committed to this idea that we can have difficult conversations and that there is much to learn and experience when we share these things with one another in the context of community. So in 2011, my husband and I moved back from China. We'd lived there for about five years, and we came back. I had two 14-month-olds. I was severely postpartum depressed. Uh, we didn't really realize the degree to which I was for a while. And we moved back into a house that was a bit of a gut job, so we were living in absolute chaos. It was a really dark time for me. I felt very alone. And so a little fun fact, in China, they don't allow Instagram or Facebook. So you could access them, but it was really difficult, and you had to use something called a VPN to do it. So I really didn't get to do it a lot. So here I am. I'm back in the States, it's 2011, I've got two babies, I'm totally out of my mind, like just depressed and isolated, and I'm fascinated by this online world. I'm just like, oh, what is this? All these people here sharing their opinions, talking about everything, you know, it's great. And so I was enamored by it, and not in an unhealthy way, but you know, just a curious way. So there were two things that I noticed when I got looking at the online world. And that was, one, there was a deep division. Two, there was a desire to connect and communicate with one another, which are two seemingly polar concepts, right? So how many of you here are on social media on a fairly regular basis? Okay, a lot of people. And how many of you have experienced stress or even a loss of hope in humanity when you've been on, right? Yes, exactly. Anybody here experiences strain in friendship or even in family relationships because of your online presence? Right. Hands are going, right? So it is a very difficult space to navigate. And in many ways, social media platforms are like the brave new world. Now, I could talk about that, but I won't. Um, so I think sites like Facebook and Instagram are excellent examples, though, of our deep desire to connect. Because why do they exist? Why are we drawn to them? Why do people love them? But it's also a great example of our dysfunction in navigating this connection. So, back to the division I was seeing. There were studies that were coming out that were indicating that the more people were connecting online, the more they were feeling isolated and alone. So I waited until the election was over, because I did come back during an election season, which was like, whoa, what's going on here? And the election ended, and things were still as divided as they were. So I'm like, okay, well, this is a problem then. And I decided to start something called Food for Thought Dinner Parties. Um, 
And, and what the idea was, is the idea was that I would bring people together around the table to have difficult conversations, eat good food, and we were going to do this. We were going to take on contentious topics. We were going to talk politics. We were going to talk about parenting, about whatever anybody wanted to talk about. I was going to play the role of moderator and host, which was kind of new for me because I like to share my opinions a lot up to this point. And I definitely learned a lot in listening to people and in moderating. But these dinners are built around the idea that people have a deep desire to connect and that when we share our stories with one another in a way that is safe, respectful, and humanizing, something sacred takes place. Now, when we look around this divided and stressed out country that we live in right now, it's hard to imagine a situation where two people would come together or eight people would come together or anybody would come together with differing ideas to sit willfully and actually talk about them. But the cool thing is, people showed up. And they continue to show up to this day. What I didn't realize at the time is that I was actively setting my table for reconciliation. So fast forward to a few years ago and I started podcasting. This time, my table was a little space that held my laptop and microphone, and this time the reconciliation was happening in holding space for the stories of others. Now, if you had asked me three years ago if I would have ever hosted a podcast, I'd have been like, no, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't listen to podcasts. But over the last year in particular, I have connected with, met with people all over the country, and I've developed actual friendships with these people. I've met a number in person, and it's just been this really amazing experience. But I don't think that it's due to my skill or expertise, because when it comes to podcasting and anti-racism work, I have neither. What I do have is a strong desire for justice, a passion for digging into difficult and painful conversations when necessary, and a desire to not only acknowledge, but to honor the Imago Dei in each and every person. So how did I get involved in anti-racism work? I'm glad you asked. For the sake of time, I'm only gonna touch briefly on a few points as it pertains to this message. But I learned pretty early in my Christian walk that church was the most segregated hour of our week. And I was deeply troubled by this because I knew that the heart of God was unity in the body. But it would take me close to 12 years to begin to learn why we were the way we were in this country and subsequently in our church buildings. Now, as Christians, we learn about reconciliation and we understand that Jesus died to reconcile us to the Father. This is the ultimate reconciliation. But reconciliation doesn't stop there. And we've got this table here you guys know about the reconciliation table, and it's amazing. This is a theme that flows through scripture. The prodigal son, Paul, going from killing Christians to preaching the gospel to anybody who would listen. Then we've got the early church, which was full of Jews, Gentiles, and Samaritans. Now, Jews and Samaritans were enemies, 
Okay, I don't know if you know this, but they would literally walk miles around to avoid one another. And, and that's just seeing each other on the street. Like, I don't even like parking eight rows back to walk into Meyer, and they would spend hours of their day trying to avoid one another. But we had the early church as our guide here, and they came together, they lived together, they shared their possessions, they broke bread with one another, they, they helped each other, and this was the ultimate example of reconciliation. People would look at the early church and they would go, what is up with them? Why is it they live so differently? They knew that the God that these people served was different, that something was different. And so I had a deep desire to be a part of reconciliation, but I had absolutely no understanding of our history or the complexities of racial division in this country. Several things had to happen in order for me to get there. One, I had to learn about our history. Two, I had to have diversity in my community and friendships. Three, I had to be willing to press into discomfort. Four, I had to get comfortable with the practice of lamentation and repentance. And this is where understanding the difference between happiness and joy and valuing the importance of being uncomfortable and feeling pain came into play. Because I can tell you, if I were chasing happiness as the world valued it, there is no way on this green earth that I would step in to some of the work that I've stepped into or the work that I'm doing now. But you know, the most surprising thing in all of this work for me is the joy that I have experienced at the reconciliation table the actual physical table at dinner parties, the virtual table in social media, and the podcast table. So in those spaces, we're pressing in, we're having hard conversations. I'm hearing heartbreaking stories, learning about atrocities, entering into lamentation, holding space for one another, and ultimately, all of this can be summed up in honoring God in another. Honoring the imago Dei in one another. See, I thought I was the one setting the reconciliation table. But I've learned over the last eight years that it was actually God setting this table all along. And I love that song that we were singing earlier. You know, even when I don't, no, and I don't see God is doing a work. Because I'll come to these points where I'm just like, how has all of this come together in such a way? It's so amazing. And it, it's just this reminder that God was there in all of these steps and all of these places along the way. So I cannot tell you enough how much agony and heartbreak and joy I have experienced being a part of this process. I have learned that in listening, lamenting with, being challenged out of my comfort zone, and in honoring the Imago Dei in every person, that God is there. And so is joy. Joy is in broken and shattered places. Joy is in difficult conversations. 
Joy is there because God is there. When I started to tune in and learn about the realities of certain injustices that were taking place in this country, in my neighborhood, to people I love and care for, I could have looked the other way. I could have done what I do when I feel pain and discomfort. And I could have reached for those defense mechanisms. I could have intellectualized it, and I could have turned to defensiveness. I could have avoided it altogether. But I made the, de the decision to trust God, that God would meet me in this difficulty because he had done it before. I said no to my comfort and yes to listening to others. I said no to my comfort and yes to sitting with others in their pain. I said no to my comfort and yes to something that seemed very likely to cause a lot of stress in my life. I said no to comfort and yes to the invitation that God placed before me. An invitation to join in the work of reconciling us to one another. So what is it for you? What hard thing do you feel that God is calling you to? What injustice are you witnessing that feels too painful to hold space for? Where are you feeling that nudge and that still small voice of God whispering, I gave you a heart for this. I want you to open your eyes your heart, and your ears. I want to break your heart the way that my heart breaks for this. And I want you to trust that I can use you to bring comfort, to bring joy, to bring connection, healing, justice, which is kingdom living. So what is it for you? And will you trust God enough to open your eyes, open your ears, and open your heart? There is something so powerful at sitting at the feet of somebody's story and just listening to them. And we see this and we hear these stories coming from the reconciliation table. The power of sitting with somebody, connecting with another human being, telling them in your actions and in your life that they matter, that you see them, that you love them. That is so powerful. And I feel so privileged to be a part of this work. So I want to encourage you guys today to think about the person, the relationship, or the situation that you have been avoiding, we could all use a reminder to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts, trusting that there is a loving God who promises to meet us there, a loving God who promises to meet us in our grief, in our discomfort, in our dissatisfaction, and in our mourning. A God who calls us past our defense mechanisms, 
into more authentic communion with one another. A loving God whose heart is reconciliation with the Father and reconciliation with one another.